Sanjay, thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming in person for this Wavemaker conversation. Well, I, I really appreciate you inviting me, and it's good to see you in person. It's so good to see you in person, and I have to say that one of the reasons I just wanted to start in this backyard surrounded by all these trees is not only have I read World War C, but I also took the opportunity to, to read your previous book, uh, Keep Sharp. And there Thank are you. so many connections between growing your brain stronger into old age that you've alerted me to that are connected to nature. And mm -hmm. one of them is the Japanese forest bath. And I told my teenage daughter yesterday, we were walking among the trees. I said, have I told you about what Sanjay reported on the Japanese forest bath? She said, yes, daddy. <laughs> and she remembered, so it's good. And she remembered. The brain's working. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about the Japanese forest bath and the connection between nature and how your brain works. Well. I, I am, am totally fascinated by this because I think there's things in life that you kind of know to be true or they make you feel good for whatever reason, but you don't necessarily know why. And that's, that's the sort of thing, like if I know the what of something, if I can understand the why of it, it's really gonna stick. So Shinrin-yoku, which is what it's called, the Japanese term for forest bathing, is basically getting into uh, the forest and breathing in the aroma of the forest breathing in the aroma of the forest. A lot of focus on breath, but that, what's, what's particular interesting about Shinrin-yoku though is this, this knowledge now um, among the Japanese that there's these chemicals that are being released into the air called phytoncides, P-H-Y-T-O-N sides. And basically they are natural stress-busting chemicals that occur in nature to help you know, plants and other things overcome toxic stress. Well, turns out we humans have receptors for these phytoncides in our body. So fascinating. So you're breathing in the aroma of the forest and it feels good, smells good, but now you think, oh, now I'm breathing in these phytoncides. I got receptors for them. They bust stress in nature. They're busting stress in me. It's like, it's a, it's a beautiful, harmonious thing. And we have receptors for these things that occur in nature, which just gives you the sense to your question about how co-evolved we are and why you know, being in nature can be so helpful to our brain and every part of our body. You're here primarily to talk about COVID, but of course, life more broadly yes, and what you've learned during COVID. So, you know, this whole idea of things changing so quickly, you know, how do you keep up with it? You're reading all the time. And when you're dealing with something that's a novel disease like this, there is no textbook. So you're constantly reading and trying to integrate it into a foundation of knowledge, you know. But I do think it's part of the, the why being so important. Again, if you understand the fundamentals of something, then you're constantly layering knowledge as opposed to like each thing is a new thing, you know, it's a siloed off piece of information. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been my whole life for almost two years now. I mean, going to the hospital and studying the pandemic and my family and exercise. That's about it. And exercise. So one question I want to ask you before we even really, really get going is you've come to me. I'd say we're about three feet apart. Mm. Your team asked me in advance, am I fully vaccinated? I was fully vaccinated officially five months ago was my mm. second vaccine. So I'm fully vaccinated. And now we're walking without masks outside. And I've already learned from you very specific things about 
COVID and even the Delta variants, transmissibility outside versus inside. Yep. What's your basic protocol right now? I mean, would you walk with just about anybody this far apart? I think so. I think if we were this far apart and there weren't, there weren't other people sort of creating a plume of virus in the air, I'm, I'm, I'm less worried about it. I, I think it's, you know, it's not one of those things where you can say the risk is zero for anything. But um, I'm vaccinated, so I'm less likely to get sick, far less likely to get sick. You're far less likely to be putting any virus out, although not zero. If you are putting virus out, it is really getting dispersed very quickly here. You have a beautiful open space here. Um, so I'm, I'm really not, not worried about that. Before Delta, I think you would have been hard pressed to find a single documented case of outdoor transmission. Delta did change that. It's just that much more contagious. But still in this sort of situation, I'm, I'm not that worried about it. Would you have gone to Music Midtown the other night? I was invited to Music Midtown, I did not go. Because? Because of this. Too many, too many people, too low a vaccination rate. I often use the metaphor of the weather. It's, it's showering here in Atlanta. It's, you know, if I, sometimes people ask me, what would be the greatest innovation in this whole pandemic? I said, being able to see the virus. If you could see it, it would change everything. All of a sudden you see a plume of orange smoke coming at you. Pe how people react would be very different, you know? It's kind of like that scene from The Princess Bride. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's tasteless, it's odorless, you know? Iocane powder, right? It's the joke, he tastes it. And he, but but it was, that's the perfect poison. You can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't feel it, you don't know it's there until it's made you very sick or kill you. That's the virus. Let's go and sit down, and then we're gonna talk about some of these issues, including the underlying ways that you assess risk versus reward, because yeah. this is a big theme of yours. And I also wanna to talk to you about this word that keeps coming up in World War C, you know, we call it the novel coronavirus, but I want to put a spotlight on that word novel <laughs> because you, Sanjay Gupta, through your career, through your life, have dealt with so many novel situations. And I know this is a big theme for you in parenting to, <laughs> to raise resilient kids who can handle novel situations. So let's go inside, talk about your book, talk about assessing risk versus reward and anything else that comes up. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. So Sanjay, first of all, I'm gonna thank you again for coming to my home yeah. and this makeshift studio here to talk about, number one, just to see each other again. Yeah. Uh, to talk about your new book, World War C, and the subtitle's interesting, Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic and How to Prepare for the Next One. Mm. So you're already thinking like, this is not the last that we'll experience. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, that's all. And why do you feel so strongly about that? Because you're an optimist. Well, I, I think that um, a lot has been discussed lately about you know where this virus came from. But that aside, it's pretty clear that uh, human beings and the various other organisms on Earth are increasingly coming in contact. Part of it is just population expansion. Obviously, a lot of it's deforestation. But these jumps from animals to humans have always been happening. There's, there's millions of jumps that are happening, and most of them are inconsequential. But if you start going from a million jumps to 10 million jumps, then you get the chance of one of these viruses being a problem. And so I, I think it's almost, almost uh, a certainty that we will see another pandemic in our lifetime. What I would say is we'll see for sure another emerging infectious disease, whether or not it turns into a pandemic, that's on us. 
that's on us. We have the capacity, I think, as a, as a human race to prevent that from happening. But if it doesn't, that's on us. What makes you think that we really have the capacity to really execute the prevention of a pandemic, given your immersion from in the past 18 months of this pandemic? Well, you know, I'll preface by saying many, many infectious disease doctors have told me that this wasn't even the black swan event. Like you think about a one in a hundred, you know, one in a century pandemic, that black swan event, they're like, well, this wasn't even really it. This was actually fairly easily controllable and it had a 0.5% mortality. 0.5% is terrible, but SARS was 10% mortality. Can you imagine if SARS had been contagious like SARS-CoV-2, like this virus? That's a black swan event. So what I, what I mean is that I think those jumps are gonna continue to happen, but the idea that it starts to sustain spread human to human in all these places around the world and becomes out of control, I think that's, that's what we can control. Simple things, I mean, you know, masks, distancing, things like that make a huge difference in the early days of the pandemic. Our last email exchange had been January 9th, 2020, right before oh, this wow. was really a pandemic. Wow. And the email was from me to you saying, hey, that uh, spinal surgeon you recommended because we were f afraid that our daughter might need spinal surgery. Right, I remember. She did not in the end, but you recommended a wonderful guy. Um, and we had just learned that she doesn't need surgery. January 9th, 2020, I was researching uh, the earliest cases, because I know you have always been obsessed with the patient zero yeah, right. in any epidemic yeah. outbreak. And here's what I found from the New England Journal of Medicine reported on January 19th, 2020, a 35-year-old man presented to an urgent care clinic in Snohomish County, Washington with a four-day history of cough and subjective fever. He checked into the clinic on and on. He had just returned. He disclosed that he had returned to Washington State on January 15th after traveling to visit family in Wuhan, China. The patient stated that he had seen a health alert from the CDC about the novel coronavirus outbreak in China, and because of his symptoms and recent travel, decided to see a healthcare provider. He was diagnosed as the first patient in the U.S. So, in these past 18 months, since that man checked into that clinic, you have been immersed thoroughly in this story. What are the most important lessons that you want to raise up high for us so that we can then take that knowledge and maybe assess the evolving headlines as we move forward? It's, it's really interesting to hear you read that, you know, because in some ways it seems like what you were describing was something that obviously I remember very well, but it felt like a decade ago. You know, time has been so warped here. And what's also warped about it is that we now know, even since that, that report of this 35-year-old this man, that there were patients before him. So it's like time moved forward and time moved backwards as well when it comes to the pandemic. It's stretched. I think, I think the, you know, there, there's a lot of incredible lessons, I think, scientifically that we've learned. And sometimes our greatest scientific advancements come when our back's up against the wall. You know, the mRNA vaccine, everyone talks about it, and I think most people recognize how significant a scientific development that was. People will win the Nobel Prize for this. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. It, it took us to another level in terms of what we can do. But they've been tinkering around with it for a while, 15, 16 years. 
doctor at UPenn actually was so interested in it but lost her tenureship or lost her, her, her uh, academic track because of her interest in this. And she went off to work in the private sector, a little company known as BioNTech, which saved the world. I mean, and, they, and they've been doing this for a long time. So I guess it's a, it's a long way of saying that I think we're capable of far more than we, we realize. And for me in my own life, and I think for my friends and my family, I say, I don't want to have a pandemic to inspire you to do things. That, that's, a, that's a hefty price to pay. But can you somehow harness the power of that pandemic and what it did to stimulate this energy and creativity? That was a big lesson for me. It's all bad. But what was it that we could take away from this and learn from? And that was a big one. I think, I think another one was something that you talked about earlier, um, how human beings perceive risk. And it's been, like everything else in this pandemic, really politicized, you know, 0.5% mortality. That's one in 200 people, you moron. Aren't you going to, you know, take cover, be careful, protect yourself? And the other guy's going, I'm 99.5% good. What are you getting? all been out of shape about. Same objective data. Totally different subjective interpretations. And you actually went to one of my favorite authors, Maria Konnikova, yeah, Maria. who yeah. wrote The Biggest Bluff. For, yeah. for those who don't know her book, The Biggest Bluff, she didn't know how to play poker. She learned it from the master, won, I think, $100,000. She got to the World Series of Poker. She's sort of one of these experts at assessing risk and luck versus what's, 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 cha what's chance and what you can control. What did you learn from Maria <laughs> Konnikova about how to decide what risk is really worth taking? Can I pause for one second and say, should I put a coaster here? Because if I've learned anything from Larry David, it's, you know, you gotta respect the wood. <laughs> that is so. so nice. You know what? Oh my gosh. I could put it on the ground. Is there a coaster? No, we have, we have a coaster. Yeah. You, you know what? You, have you ever watched that episode? Do you, you watch Curve Your Enthusiasm? You are so, that is so funny. My, you gotta respect oh, the wood. My yeah. wife, you know what? She's gonna say, you can invite Sanjay back. That's really wonderful. Well, it's, I've been trained well, let's put it that yeah. way. So Maria Konnikova, The Biggest Bluff, how do you assess risk? She's a psychologist too, did you know that? Yes. I mean, it's kind of a perfect mix. I wanna figure out who to talk to about risk. A psychologist, poker player, perfect. Um, what I learned from Maria, and she's, she's very adept at explaining this because I think she came to it in a really interesting way. She didn't know how to play poker. Um, that fundamentally, uh, poker is a game of uncertainty, much like life is. And the difference is that with poker, you're forced to bet on that uncertainty. That's just, just as, a, as a sort of top line, I thought that was intriguing enough to say, hey, let's sit down and chat. So what, what it was about betting on uncertainty, it's also in a way forces you to bet on your confidence in something. Part of it's uncertainty, but in a way you're betting on the flip side of it. You're betting that you're right, even in the face of uncertainty. Now, we do this all the time in our life, but we don't really have to show it. You don't know how certain I am of something. I can tell you something and I could be 70% certain, but you might think I'm 100% certain, you know? What poker does, it kind of it levels the playing field. So all of a sudden you have to say, okay, I am this amount confident. Kant, who Maria actually quotes in her book, Immanuel Kant, and I'm talking pure reason sort of time period, maybe 1800s, writes of a story where he's basically seeing a doctor, which I thought really interesting, and the doctor tells him something about his malady. Here's what's ailing you, or whatever they said back then. And, and Kant wasn't so sure that the doctor was right. 
So Kant basically went through this process where he was asking the doctor to bet on it. Would you bet $10 on that? A hundred? A car? Your marriage? Your happiness? Like how confident are you really? And I think that that's what Maria really sort of talks about in her, her book, The Biggest Bluff, but also this idea that if you, broadly speaking, beyond just poker, what it means in our lives. You asked me would I be willing to go to Music Midtown, for example. How confident am I that I'd be okay if I went to Music Midtown, right? You get a binary answer, I chose not to go. But if you wanna dig deep, you can dig deep into how people actually think about risk, and it's a fascinating area to explore. So, you know, this actually gets into the whole issue now of, you know, we're entering the fall and the winter entertainment season. We want to go to the Nutcracker. We want to go to Broadway. We want to go to sports events. Uh, all of these major organizations and minor ones are instituting protocol now. And essentially, they're showing their hand. In a sense, you really want to show your hand. Here's what we are confident about, and here's what we are not confident about. So let me ask you, what kind of protocol would it take you, Sanjay Gupta, and your family to say, we feel comfortable enough with this to bet that this entertainment is not going to cause harm? Well, I think, I think it's the last couple Sentence, couple sentences that you said in terms of how you frame this, right? Not going to cause harm. To who? To me? To my family? To society? You know, and what I mean by that is that right now we're in the middle of a viral storm. We're trying to bring this pandemic to an end. And when I say end, I don't mean zero COVID. I mean a cohabitation with which we are now comfortable with this virus, like we are with other viruses, flu other coronaviruses, things like that. Some will always argue we're cohabitating too easily. We should be more, you know, make it less hospitable. Others may say, why are you making such a fuss? Just, we'll cohabitate, it's fine. We'll, people will get sick every now and then, that happens. Anyways, whenever we get to that steady state, I think at that point you can basically say, hey look, uh, I would be in a situation where if people were vaccinated around me, uh, testing, if they could, that would be ideal, because I think testing probably isn't utilized enough. And, and if there was a lot of viral spread, then masking. But other than that, I don't think that I, I would really, I, I think once we get to that steady state, I think in many ways life will feel much more normal again. Is it not enough right now for a theater to say, we're requiring proof of vaccination? If not proof of vaccination, then uh, a COVID test from the past 72 hours, which a lot of organizations are doing, plus mandatory masking. Is that enough? I, I, I would say so. I would say that, that that sounds like enough. But the primary obligation, I guess, is what I'm saying, Michael, is to lower the viral spread. Anthony Fauci put a number on it. He said if we got below 10,000 cases per day in the country, that, that's a good number. That feels like now we got it under control. We got to 11,000 in June of this year. Last time we were below 10,000 was in March of 2020, and now we're over 150,000. So it's not a good time, is what I'm saying. You can create safe havens. I, I, I don't disagree with that. But that, don't, don't be under the illusion that that's doing anything to benefit this pandemic. You're not. You're potentially still worsening it. So as we're on this issue uh, of, of uh, how to get to steady state, you know, how to, how to limit that virus, there are a few big topics in the news right now which are going to be evolving 
quickly over the next few weeks. And so I'm looking for the whys here and the how you're gonna figure things out. Booster shots. Yeah. Okay, so I just checked my card. It's been five months. They're talking about maybe six months, eight months. How are you going to assess when eh, my family and I could really use a booster shot now? I hope the Biden administration approves it mm. for people our age. What, what are you gonna to need to learn can I just say one, one thing about the previous thing real quick? Yeah. Just so I, I want to make sure I'm leaving with the right impression. Yeah. The, the, um, you asked me about going to a Broadway play or something like that. Yeah. I love that stuff. Um, it does get back to the risk-reward thing. If it were my daughter's wedding or something like a big life event, I would do it. Um, for other things, I, I think you can make perfectly safe environments, but the reward for me personally isn't enough. So I think you've got you to evaluate both, and you've got to be honest about both. You know, not how, how big a deal is it? Booster shot's a really interesting story because I think it's a metaphor for a larger issue that's going on in our country. And that is the, you know, the overall politicalization of science. Um, I was surprised at how it was handled because the, the White House came out and basically said, we're gonna be doing booster shots. Eight months after you got your uh, vaccination, you'll be eligible for a booster shot. We're starting September 20th. Put a date on it. And by the way, we're gonna wait for the FDA and CDC to weigh in on this as an afterthought. That's just not how you're supposed to do things. The scientific agencies are supposed to tell you that you can do this first, that it's scientifically valid, that there's rationale for it, and then the White House announces it. The White House made it seem like this was preordained, and it wasn't, because when the FDA scientists looked at the data, they came to a different conclusion than some of the folks at the White House had. For me personally, what I think is kind of amazing is that the vaccines work really well. I, I am, it's sort of like the steady state argument again. If I were to get COVID, I probably would have a very mild case. And that's sort of the point. Would I take a booster so that I wouldn't have a couple days of sniffles and things like that? Probably not. I probably wouldn't. Um, not because it's... I'm worried about the safety of the vaccine, or, and it's not even an equity issue. Like, oh, we should save these for other countries. We should, but that's not the rationale. For me, is I think you take things if you need it. I'm not gonna give everyone statin drugs either, just because I'm worried about cholesterol in America. I think you have to have a rationale. And so when you looked at the data, two things really jumped out. The people who were breaking through their vaccine, the breakthrough infections, so to speak, that were getting sick enough to be hospitalized were really, either mostly people over the age of 65 and people who had certain medical conditions. That was really primarily it. That's who was ending up in the hospital. It was very unlikely for someone like me, you know, making my own decision to end up in the hospital. The Israelis' data that they used, which was very interesting because they're ahead of us in terms of vaccinations. They got 65% of the country vaccinated. They've been boosting since August. What was very interesting is they defined severe illness in Israel as a blood oxygenation below 94 and rapid breathing. That'd be somebody who'd be considered severely ill. That is not how we define severely ill in this country. We, we kind of made it almost synonymous with hospitalization. So we were looking at two totally different data sets and trying to say, oh, well, I mean, they have this degree of severe illness and it, it got this much better when they gave boosters. Well, people went from 94% oxygenation to 96 and they, you know, that's like taking away the sniffles. So here is, here's sort of the point. It's a hard story to tell on television, 
and people may not understand it. At the end of the day, they just want to know what you would do, like you asked me, and I would say, when I put it all together, I don't think I need a booster. My parents, yes, but not me. Oh, but you just gave me the whys and the numbers behind the whys, yeah. so now I can sort of figure it out. Is there, are you seeing any sign that, I guess it's almost too early to tell, what is, from the people you've spoken to, are, when does immunity start to wane significantly enough so that we should be concerned and recalculate our risk-reward calculation? Or do we not know yet? Do we not, not have enough information? I, I, I don't think we, we know for sure, and I also think it depends on how you define wane. Um, breakthrough infections in and of themselves I have found to be a poor metaphor for vaccine efficacy. And, 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 and again, this is one of those whys, right? If you look at what happens in the body of someone who is vaccinated with this vaccine, it is creating essentially an army of protector cells around the lungs, okay? It doesn't want this virus to get in the lungs because once it gets in the lungs, that's when people get really sick. It doesn't provide as much protection, what is called mucosal protection in the upper airway. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means if you're vaccinated and you're carrying virus in your upper airway, that's not at all surprising. Vaccine, vaccinologists will say, well, yeah, of course that guy tests positive. The, the, that's not what the vaccine does. The vaccine protects it from getting in the lungs. So now we look at all these people who get breakthrough infections because they, they're getting tested and they're saying, wow, breakthrough infection rates are X and we need to boost. Breakthrough infections were always expected it's, it, it reveals sort of fundamental lack of understanding of what the vaccine really does. People think, I can't get infected anymore. Not the case. If you were to even swab during flu season, you'd find a lot of flu in people who are perfectly healthy, have no symptoms. So, you know, that, that's, that's one, way, one thing you really have to remember about how you're assessing whether something's effective or not. And, uh, and in Israel, again, 64% vaccinated, boosting since August. They have the highest case rates they've had at any point during this pandemic. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think because it's a very contagious virus is the fundamental reason. But the idea that even with vaccination and boosting that it's gonna prevent the upper airway from having you know, a virus in it is, 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 is not the way that the vaccine works. I do think that we're gonna have a rapid decline of cases. Uh, you know, if you look at what happened in the UK, for example, I think there will be a rapid decline. You do think we're going to have a rapid decline? Just because we've seen this in other countries. You know, in the UK, and even though Israel now has more cases, they had a rapid decline as well. I think I think two things will happen. One is that I think we will get some sense of control over this this um, this virus, but I also think we're going to figure out the right things to measure to to, to sort of give an idea of when we can return to those types of activities pretty safely. And I think it's just basically feeling like uh, uh, you, you got, you know, it's, the hospitals are not going to become overwhelmed. You're not going to have high deaths, you know. We have to figure out what we're comfortable with, what that steady state is. But I think that may happen, frankly, Michael, over the next couple of months. Guys like Gottlieb and, and others have been saying this is probably the last big surge of this. It's not that there won't be other surges. It's the last big surge, they think. I mean, could some variant be out there that is going to be so different that it's going to cause another surge? Perhaps, but I don't think they've seen that yet. They're past lambda in the Greek alphabet, so, you know, they've got a lot since Delta all the way to lambda that they've been tracking. And um, 
so I'm optimistic in that regard. I think we will be in a place where the viral spread will come down to a controllable level and we'll be able to do nutcracker and things like that. So, so just to finish the hard new stuff, and then I want to get into just, I want to return to this idea of something novel, something yeah. big, and how do you deal with something novel? But just let's do the vaccines from five to 12. When are you, what do you need to know to think, to, to conclude that these are good to go for five to 12 year olds? I think that the data that we've seen so far that has been released by the company only, that's all we've seen, if that gets validated, I think it's, I think it's really good data. You, you have to take this in the context of there's been some five billion of these shots now given out around the world. Um, and so I wouldn't have accepted this sort of data had that not been the case. But we know that as a general rule, this is a safe vaccine. It's been trialed now and now you have five billion shots of real data out there. That's such an important number, five billion yeah. shots of real data. Yep. So for some of the people who have hesitancy because it's sort of new, yep. but it's five billion shots. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's it's people who, who demand certain levels of evidence may always have those level of, levels of evidence change based on you know how dug in they are on their position. But it's becoming increasingly challenging to, to, to really question the, the validity in terms of safety and efficacy of these vaccines. People will always say, well, where's the long-term data? Well, the only way you can get long-term data is long-term. So are you gonna, are you gonna wait 10 years to give a vaccine to get the long-term data? That's, it's a ridiculous proposition, you know, but people will raise it because you can always require more evidence to, to defend your position. But I think because it's got real-world data and because um, uh, it was, they tested for safety in these kids and the kids seem to generate really good antibodies, I think it's a, it's a good vaccine. I would, I would already, if I had kids that young, I don't anymore, but if I did, I would certainly recommend that they get it. One of the things I came across in your book was an early mission statement that you had in life. Uh, actually, just went around the time you joined CNN, mm. you said, I wanted to tell the stories of the human spirit under the most challenging circumstances. I mean, this is basically among the most challenging circumstances. Is there a particular story that you can share from your reporting over the last 18 months that really tells the story of the human spirit under the most challenging circumstances? There's, there's, been, um, there's been so many people who have risen up, I think, during this pandemic. And uh, th their stories don't, don't get told enough. And in some ways, they're hard to tell. They're almost like, you almost feel sometimes like maybe you're tainting it a bit by even telling it. Like it wasn't meant to be recalled. But I, I remember like early on, um, March or so of last year, you know, uh, I had to go to the grocery store for something. And the person in front of me uh, took time to, as I was gonna touch the knob, cleaned it, cleaned it off before I was to touch it. Now in the end, we now know this doesn't even really transfer by surfaces, but we didn't know that at the time. And I just remember thinking, we may be okay. We got actually decent people around who just like, that guy just cares. You know, he didn't need to do that. But he, you know, he, he for me. And because I was the next person to touch the door. I had friends of mine, many doctors who, who volunteered their time in the COVID units because the hospitals were so overwhelmed. And, and the doctors who were working the COVID units were exhausted. 
you know, and burned out. So other doctors would come in who, who weren't on those units, who weren't infectious disease or pulmonologists, but coming in to basically, hey, how can I help? One of the guys I remember telling me, I, I, I just think about him all the time, he had a young baby at home. And so he was going to do work that he didn't have to do, and then he'd come home and sleep in the garage every night because he didn't want to sleep in the house. Those are, those are incredible stories, you know. I do think that the story, again, of this mRNA vaccine, and particularly Aslam Tarechi and Uhar Sahin, the husband and wife team of BioNTech, it's an incredible story. They're, they, they're, they're um, living in Germany, they're Turkish. They um, fell in love in the lab, got married, spent their honeymoon back in the lab, working on this for their whole life, basically shoestringing it, riding a bike to work every day, just making it work. And when this, this pandemic happens, he and they both come together and they say, this is our moment. We're gonna create something that's gonna save the world. And they did it. That's a pretty remarkable story. And they're just incredible people. So, you know, they're, they're the kind of people who do right and do the right thing. They're just, they know how to, they have competence and they have intent. And I think it sometimes feels like a rare combination. So I, um, I, uh, I, I think there's plenty of stories like that, of people who really rose up. Let me ask you to tell a story from your personal experience, which I hadn't actually known until I read your book, Keep Sharp. And you shared this story, and it really has to do with how we approach novel situations. It's from back in 2003. I was at CNN with you at that time. I wasn't totally aware of what happened. You were in the Iraqi desert with the, was it called the, the desert docks? The devil docks. The yeah. devil docks yep. of the Navy. Uh, a serviceman was shot in the head. You were the only neurosurgeon nearby. You did not have the proper equipment, but you figured out how to save his life. Tell us that story, because I really think that's so fascinating and when I hear that story, I just, I get so optimistic about potential. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too. You know, um, it, it's, uh, first of all, I was an embedded reporter. And uh, as an embedded reporter, people see, you know, what you're putting out on TV, but you, you, you develop really strong relationships with the people you're with. You're embedded with them. So, you know, you're spending a lot of nights just talking about your life and sports and marriages and whatever it may be. And, um, you get to know each other, and also when you're embedded in a military in a conflict situation, they're all they're also kind of responsible for you to some extent. That was the whole embedding process that it would allow reporters to be able to have some degree of safety traveling through these war-torn areas. Anyways, I was traveling with the Devil Docs. They're a group of uh, doctors, nurses, corpsmen, people who who basically hopscotch around the battlefield, right behind whatever front line you know position they're they're covering, and take care of the wounded as soon as they are wounded. It, which is an incredible thing. In, in 91, during the Gulf War, there was no such thing. Medical capabilities were purely in Kuwait, in the Gulf, and then maybe transported to a different country even. So if somebody got injured in the battlefield, it took them a while to get back to any kind of standard of care. And people were dying in transport. And I, remember, I remember you reporting on the golden hour. That's right. That one hour that one after hour. you're wounded. So this was, the devil docks were basically designed to try and target the golden hour, to take care of the patients within that hour. We get to know each other, 
they have general surgeons and orthopedic surgeons and one day uh, they come to me in the middle of this Shamal sandstorm, I still remember, and said, hey, kid, would you, you know, take off your, your journalist cap, put on your surgeon's cap to take care of this, this Marine lieutenant who'd been shot in the head. And they, they brought him in. In the field they thought that he had actually died because they couldn't find a pulse, but it was chaos out there. It was real cacophony. They, they couldn't tell for sure. And then when they got back, they found a pulse. And that's when they came and got me. Gunshot wound to the head in the desert, but no particular tools in order to do the operation that I would do back here in the States. But what you really have to accomplish in those situations is you have to take the pressure off of the brain. That's what you have to do. The brain is the only organ in the body that is confined by something tough and hard, the skull. Every other organ can swell, the brain cannot. So you have to take the pressure off the brain. And we had no drill, except for the Black & Decker drill, which we've been using to put up the tent as we were hopscotching around the desert. So I took the bit, the drill bit from that drill, put in a sterilizing solution, wrapped the drill in these, these gloves, these sterile gloves. I had gloves on, I was gowned, I had a mask, hat, everything. And then I basically put the sterile bit on and used that drill then to basically remove a portion of Jesus' skull to decompress his brain from the injury. Remove some bullet fragments, blood that it collected, and that was basically it. I had, there was not much more that I could do for him, but it was, it was the majority of the operation that he really needed. I was worried that he might get infected. And this may have been the most sort of MacGyver-esque thing that we actually did out there, which was like, so I need to put something on his brain to prevent it from getting infected, but there was nothing that was sterile that could stay there. And there was an IV bag that was hanging. And we looked at the IV bag and said, the inside of that IV bag is perfectly sterile. So we took it, we dumped the IV bag in betadine, iodine solution, filleted it open, used the inside of that IV bag to recreate the outside of Jesus' brain. And then wrapped him up, Black Hawk helicopter lands, takes him away, and I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again. But that was, that was a story. And I'll just tell you quick, I did see him again. I did see him again because I got a call one day. Did I tell you the story? No, but I think you shared part of it in the book. I shared part of this, but I don't know if I told this part, but I get, no. I get a call one day. I'm back, in, I'm back in Atlanta now. Oh, no, you didn't tell me this. This is five or six months later. And it's 619 area code. I, I see the area code. And it's a, so I, I know that to be a San Diego area code. And I pick up the phone. I'm like, hello? And the guy says, oh, is, it, is this Dr. Gupta? I have an update on one of your patients. And I said, San Diego? I said, nah, I think you probably have the wrong Dr. Gupta. As it turns out, there's quite a few of us. Chuckle, 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 right? There are a lot of Indian doctors. But then he says, no, I think I got the right guy. Do you remember operating on Jesus Vidanya over in Iraq? I said, how do you, yeah, how does one forget operating on Jesus in the middle of the desert, right? And still have no idea how he did. Like, is he going to tell me that he didn't make it or, you know, and he says, Oh, he's doing, he's doing really well. He's got some left-hand weakness, but other than that, he's doing great. If you're ever in Southern California, you should pop by and see him. And I was like, you know, I was like, oh, God, stomach, chest, just like it was felt powerful emotion, you know? Like, powerful emotion can hurt sometimes. It's so powerful, even if it's good. And, um, but I was so happy. And then 
but I was going to be in Southern California, so I looked him up. Never, you know, never seen him before except in the battlefield, right? And uh, I go visit him, drive to his house, knock on the door, and he answers. Big strapping, you know, Marine guy, you know, you know, just super nice guy. Come on in, you know, send everything. We're talking. Young, right? Early 20s. Living with his mom and his dad and his brother. A little bit later, his mother comes out and she says, uh, she says, are you the guy that operated on my son? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she takes my hands in her hands and she just holds them and she just says, thank you. It was very touching. A few minutes later, his dad comes out. Dads are different, right? His dad comes out, he goes, you the guy that operated on my son? I said, yeah, yes, sir, I am. He goes, and you're a journalist? <laughs> I said, sir, I don't think you've heard the whole story. <laughs> and we sat down and we talked. And I'll tell you something, Michael, part of the reason I really enjoyed these conversations is because I realized something even back then, this is 2003 timeframe, they had never talked about it as a family. They went through this incredible thing, but they never talked about it because they went to Germany, then they went to Walter Reed, they were with Jesus, they brought him home, and life goes on, and you're back at it. And so I was sitting there realizing that I was in, in a way nurturing a conversation that otherwise would not be had. And his dad, who's a yeah, stoic guy, I mean, these, they're, 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 you know, a two-job kind of guy, you know, making ends meet, but, you know, facing the real struggles of life. You can tell he's got, and he says, yeah, we never, we never talked about it, you know, and I said, well, what, you know, what are you thinking now? He goes, you know, what I think now is that when Jesus went off to war, he basically said to me, I'll probably be back in a couple weeks, Dad, don't worry about this because there had been this ups and downs in Iraq at that point. They had been deployed, they came back, deployed, came in. He thought, I'll be back in a couple weeks. He says, Dad, don't worry about me. That's the last thing Jesus said to me. He said, the only thing you should worry is if, and it's not going to happen, but if a car pulls up and two guys get out, then you worry. He goes, so one day I'm at home, getting ready early, like 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, getting ready to go to work. The storm door to our house is open, but the screen door is shut. And I see a car pull up, and two guys in uniforms get out and they walk up to the front door and I'm standing there they can see me and I can see them there's just a screen door and they're knocking like sir sir I couldn't move I was paralyzed I couldn't and then finally his mother came and answered the door and let the guys in they said he's alive but he's been badly wounded that's when they first found out I, I, I was like I can't believe you guys have never talked about this and I can't, you know, like, there's such deep, profound understanding. And I could tell Jesus, even listening to his father speak about this from his father's perspective for the first time, was very emotional. He was very touched by it. I don't think he'd ever seen his father in that light. So, you know, it's, it's, it, was a, it was a great ending in the sense that this beautiful family experience, Jesus is now married, has kids. We, we trade pictures all the time. I had to give a commencement at USC, University of Southern California Medical School. And I wouldn't normally do this, but I, but I decided, this is like 2008, 2009, I said, I'm gonna invite Jesus. He lives right here, I'll invite Jesus, you know. So I was giving my speech and kind of riffing a little bit, telling some stories, kind of having some fun, as you often do at a med school graduation, you know, just, I've been through what you've been through, let me tell you what life's gonna be like, sort of stuff. And I said, by the way, and I told a little bit of this story. 
and, and, but I didn't tell them how it ended. And I said, and, but they, and so they were wondering, did he, did he survive, did he not survive? And I said, everybody, meet Jesus Vidania. And he stands up and the place just erupts, right? Med students standing on their chairs, trying to get a glimpse of this guy, clapping, you know, it was just, it was beautiful. And I just said, hey, that feeling that you get right there, you've just entered a profession where you get to do that all the time. So, you know, have at it. And uh, it was, it was his, his intersection with my life has been so, started with such tragedy, but has taught me so much. It brings me back to a story you told about how you got interested in medicine in high school when your maternal grandfather had a yeah. stroke and you watched these doctors care so much and they saved his life. And yeah. you said, wow, yeah. I remember you telling me that. Yeah. And wow, it came full circle. Well, many times full circle, <laughs> right? Absolutely, I mean, those, you never know like what experience you had. But that idea, uh, there's so much in that story. I'm so glad you told me the whole thing. <laughs> uh, People but, often want to know the first part, right? But I think, you know, oh. for, for someone who's as curious as yourself and also so, so interested in the human condition. So let me ask you, you know, as you've been through so much, I mean, that, that Iraq story was one just, just one story of so many. You've covered so many disasters, wars. Now you've covered this and yet you are still hopeful. You are a hopeful person. And it sounds like you feel like, do you feel like you are sending your daughters out into a hopeful world? And, and if so, how are you communicating that to them? And actually, let me ask you even more specifically, uh, you said you've spent, in your book, you said you spent more time with your family during this pandemic than the previous 10 years. Let me just ask you, what have you learned about parenting during the pandemic? Um, I, I think most fundamentally, I, I um, realize that I like it. I mean, I think that that's, it sounds a bit glib to say, but I mean, it's not like I really had a lot of experience with parenting until I became a parent. I assumed that I would like it, but there's a lot more about being a parent than anybody ever will tell you, you know, and that you can imagine until you're actually doing it. So I really like being a dad, you know, so that, that was a, that was a, um, um, a good a good thing you know it, it, you hate to talk about the pandemic in any kind of euphemistic way but there were some silver linings and i think that was that was one of them i um i uh sort of found that we you know even though my kids are young we sort of fundamentally share the same values the same sorts of things bother us the same sorts of things we find joy with sometimes it's like really specific things like a type of music or a piece of art like, wait, you like that? I like that. How do you like, you know? <laughs> but other times it's just that, you know, um, hearing a story and reacting to a particular part of the story the same way, you know. Um, maybe not even the most important part of the story, but a part of the story, you know, that sort of stuff. I, I, I also found, to be just perfectly honest, it's hard. I, I, it's tough being a dad, you know. It's, it's not easy. Um, I don't always know what the girls want from me. Uh, sometimes they don't want anything. And you said something interesting in your book. You said your wife had confided in t to you that sometimes the girls don't come to you with their problems because I always try and fix it, and they and they don't want it to be fixed. The fixing for them is just to be heard. You know, that's all they want. But I, I think you know, it's it's. I'm not good at that, and I think that I, I'm not sure that I've gotten better, but I don't think I'll ever be great at it. I, I want to ask you something else, and. 
away from COVID and towards this really long-term obsession you've had with exercise and how it builds the brain. And we spoke about it a little bit when we spoke it years ago for our first wave maker conversation. And this, the, you keep on learning more and more and you incorporated it a lot into your book, Keep Sharp. But it also plays into, I mean, the whole second half of your book on COVID is about optimizing your health. So you're a very holistic guy. Tell us what you've learned recently about just how important exercise is in terms of building your brain, not just into middle age, but well into old age. It's, exercise is probably the most evidence-based way to actually create new brain cells. Neurogenesis, something that most people, even up to 10, 20 years ago, did not think was possible in the healthy brain to actually continue to build new brain cells. They believed what I guess our parents told us, you know, you get a certain number of brain cells, you drain the cash, and then you're done. Alcohol speeds up the decline, you know, all these other things speed up the decline. That's what we were taught. And it's not to say that those things may or may not be true. There's certain things that are quite destructive to your brain. But you can build new brain cells at any age and exercise, movement I should say more specifically, is probably the most evidence-based way to do it. There's lots of different things that do it, but it has such compelling evidence behind it. And what I found most interesting, um, just because I think most people sort of understand the basic value of exercise, is that they often say what is good for the heart is good for the brain. But when it comes to movement, there are some, there are some differences. Um, brisk walking, for example, was found to be the best way to release this, this compound known as BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. That's the miracle growth stuff for the brain. Not my language. A very prominent neuroscientist described it that way to me. I'm like, what does this BDNF do? It's miracle growth for the brain. Wow, I want that. How do I get it? You can't inject it. You can't swallow it. You can't eat it. Best way to get it? Brisk walking. Not even running. Not even running, and here's why. It's not that you're not making BDNF when you run. The problem, and there's plenty of literature now, that the problem is that you also generate a lot of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and it tends to block the effects of BDNF. So you get both, but they counterbalance each other. So running is great in so many ways, cardiovascular health and all these things, but if you want to find the best activity for the brain, it's probably a brisk walk. That's a little bit, again, of the, of, of the why of things. But that, so we just created something new here. Well, let's bring it back full circle to the beginning. Yeah. The Japanese forest yeah. bathing, if you were to walk briskly in a forest, you've got it made. I think that's probably one of the healthiest things you can do for yourself. I called your former producer, David Martin. I said, any questions for Sanjay? How do you, how do you promote public health in a situation like this when people don't trust the people they should be trusting. Have you been able to take a skeptic in a conversation and sort of convince them yeah. of, of the right thing to do and how did you do that? You know, I, I had this guy, I'll tell you really quickly. It's the most amazing story. I, our air conditioning was not working at the house. Hot. Finally get an air conditioning guy out to fix it. Comes a nice guy, probably in his mid-70s, wearing a, a mask, N95 mask, goes and fix it. Very soft-spoken guy, very nice, fixes it, and he's walking out of the house now. And as he's walking out, he says to me, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he, he knows who I am. I didn't know if he knew who I was, but apparently he knew who I was. And he says, um, should I take the vaccine? It's about two weeks ago, right? And I said, 
Yeah, yeah, you should take the vaccine. I mean, I, I really see no reason why not. There were some concerns about allergies, you know, I, I'm, but for vast majority of people, absolutely. And he goes, okay. He goes, the reason I ask is because I got a stent that was put in my leg last year, a couple of years ago, and, and they said, you know, got to worry about blood clots. And I heard that there was something about the vaccine and blood clots. So I wasn't sure whether to take it or not. And I said, oh, well, in fact, there had been some news about blood clots with these vaccines, but it was mostly with uh, this one vaccine. It was very rare, 10 in a million, you know, 1 in 100,000 type situation, mostly postmenopausal women. I was telling him all this. And he's like, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. He goes, you know, my daughter died last week of COVID. And she was not vaccinated. And she said to me, before she went on the ventilator, she said, promise me you'll get vaccinated. And I want to get vaccinated, but I was worried about these clots and I've been calling my doctor and I could not, my doctor never called me back. So you're the first person I saw and I'm asking you, should I get the vaccine? So I think it's really challenging to present people who haven't taken the vaccine as this monolithic sort of resistant bunch who is doing this to spite the vaccinated, to wear their politics on their sleeve, whatever you want to call it. Maybe there are many people who are like that, but not all of them. So this guy hopefully has now been vaccinated and, and has a much higher chance of surviving now what we're going through than he otherwise would have. This was just two weeks ago. Just two weeks ago. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining me in my screened-in porch with a lot of airflow, yes. six feet apart, fully vaccinated. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm gonna do? Let me get my phone because we did this last time and I'm gonna put you on the spot, but you're so good at this. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna hit a video and in 60... Mm. Hydration, key to life. Hydration. <laughs> Sanjay. In 60 seconds, so if, if we had to write this story, you know, what did we just accomplish? What's the headline? What did we accomplish in this wave maker conversation with Sanjay Gupta? I think what we accomplished today um, was we were able to have a conversation that wasn't driven by any kind of particular goal. It wasn't just an exchange of information, it was to actually add to the knowledge tree. I think that, you know, evolutionarily, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time sort of uh, exchanging information, making things work, keeping the trains running on time. But I think where we suddenly take off as a species is when we have conversations like this and, and something new may come of it, something unexpected, something surprising, something you hadn't thought of and that'd be the point. Take a lot of shots, and this conversation is one of them.